would stand with me the honor of reading of God's word as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, uh, for you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Um, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Tony, if you come, I'll pray with you. Father, Lord, thank you for my brother, Tony. I just pray. Um, that, um, um, that we, we know that you are with him and with all of us today, but we pray that um, your spirit um, especially empower him now. Um, let him speak boldly um, about who we are in you and in what our future and the future of all creation is in you. Um, Lord, um, we'll pray for us all now to, um, to have ears to hear um, and, and minds to, um, to process and hearts um, to absorb your word today. Lord, we love you, and we pray in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. All right, so let's do a quick straw poll. Um, everyone ready? Loosen up, because I'm going to ask for a raise. Yeah, we got, we, that, that was not the poll. <laughs> let's do a quick straw poll. Raise your hands if you like naps. It's like everybody in the room except for a couple. Some of you are like, I hate naps. Naps are the worst. But most of us love naps, right? We love the comfortable sensation of drifting off into like peaceful oblivion, right? Sleep. But what happens if we nap too often or if we sleep too much? Anybody have consequences on that? Um, whenever, whenever my wife and I were dating... Um, I, I, she was still in school. I was going to work every morning. And uh, I had the habit of staying up way too late at night. And so and I, would, I would fall asleep. And I would sleep very deeply. And my alarm would go off. I wouldn't hear it. So if you can imagine just screeching, eh, 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 I'm a deep sleeper, didn't wake me up at all. And so Bree, being the sweet lady that she was, liked to have this habit of coming over to my house to say, oh, good morning, Tony, give me a kiss on the cheek. She'd go off to school, I'd go off to work, and it was a beautiful thing. Except for the days when she got to my house at, you know, 7.30, I'm supposed to be at work at 8, I have a 45, 30, 45-minute drive, and she pulls up and hears my alarm going off. From outside the house, like it's a loud alarm. And so she can hear it. So she comes in, she bangs on the door or opens it if it's unlocked, and like she's not allowed to come up the stairs or be in my room because we're being safe and pure and all that kind of stuff. 
and she yells up, Tony, wake up! It's time to go to work, right? And so uh, I would jolt awake, like immediately look over at the buzzing clock, see that there was no way I was going to make it to work on time, and try to figure out how I got to get a shower, throw on clothes, rush out the door. Um, and she laughed slash scolded me, you know, more or less. Um, but, like, there were consequences because I would show up to work way too often late, right? I was unprepared, and, um, and it, it caused trouble. So you may have noticed all throughout our series, we've had this up on the screen. The word awake, wake up, um, as a theme for our series. And some of us, some of us um, feel very awake. Some of us feel very sleepy. We wonder what this has been about. And, and this is really the central passage in this book where this subject of sleepiness versus being awake comes up. And if there are consequences to sleeping in too late at your job, like physical too much sleep, physical sleepiness, then we understand that there are, there are consequences to, to spiritual sleepiness. We've talked about being spiritually awakened throughout this series, and today we dig into that more. Um, let's go ahead and just start again by reading the first few verses. So this is going to be 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. It says, Now concerning the times and the season, brothers, you've no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And so Paul begins again in these verses in, in a similar way to how he has before throughout this book. He says, I have no need to teach you on this subject. And then he proceeds to teach them on the subject as a reminder, okay? And so he's speaking to them on something that they already know about to a certain degree. Something that they are, he says, fully aware of. They're fully aware um, concerning the times and seasons of the return of the Lord, and that he'll come like a thief in the night. Now, they're aware of this because it was a common teaching of Jesus and became an incredibly common teaching in the early church. The idea that the return of Christ, that the second appearing of the Messiah, um, would come suddenly, unexpectedly, was mentioned over and over and over in the Scripture. It's throughout the Gospels. It's elsewhere in Paul. We find it in um, one of the letters that Peter wrote. We also find it in the book of Revelation in several places. So this was a teaching that they knew about. The day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, as we read about last week, would come suddenly like a thief in the night. And notice uh, what he describes here. He says that while people are saying peace and security... So there's this sense that Jesus is coming back. Like the world is going to change. Judgment is coming. It will happen. But that most people will be spiritually asleep whenever it happens. 
people will be saying, there's peace, there's security, everything is right as rain, everything's normal, everything is perfect. And then all of their security will evaporate. All of their peace will be burned up. There'll be a sudden destruction, it says in verse 3. A sudden destruction. And it'll be inescapable. I'm going to read a parallel passage out of the book of Matthew that's helpful on this. This is Jesus. Um, He's gone through a series of teaching on what he calls um, the day of the Lord or the day of the Son of Man. Um, He's been teaching about his return, and he kind of says these things. He says, um, Matthew 24, starting in verse 36, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. We'll pause there for a moment. So the anchor of this passage and like the kind of a foundational belief to what Jesus and Paul are talking about in these verses is the idea that no one knows the day or the hour. Um, Whenever Jesus says this, recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, there's this whole background in the Old Testament of prophecies about a coming day when the Messiah would rule in an everlasting kingdom, and here Jesus is on the earth, he's arrived, he's standing right in front of them, and yet he says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even me. He's on earth, but his day hadn't come. And so as he gave this teaching, he was looking forward to another day, and his disciples were looking forward to another day that was still yet to come. No one knows the day or the hour. And then he speaks of this. For as were in the days of Noah. Um, What's the big event, right? In Noah's life. Shout it out. Feel free. This is response time. Yeah, a big flood. Thank you. Softball's here, right? So Noah was alive on the earth, and things got real bad, right? Sin was everywhere. Um, the, the, The amount of sin was high, and the depth of the sin was low. It affected every person in every place, and as God looked out at at people on the earth and their sin, it was hideous. It was damaging. It was destructive. And he says in a moment, (laughs) I wish I'd never made y'all. But he looks at Noah, one person who still has faith, and he says, I'm going to start over. 
we're going to start over. And he sends a flood. Noah shows his faith by building a giant boat, putting animals in it, and he lives. But everyone else on the earth is wiped away by the flood. It says, in those days they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. It was just normal life, right? Jesus is teaching them that the day when he would come as the conquering king would be just like the days of Noah. It's normal life for so many people. Folks out sitting at a restaurant, chowing down, drinking their drinks. It was probably somebody's wedding day, the day of the flood. Weather looks like it's going to be great, right? A normal day. People went about their business filled with all the hopes that normal people are filled with, you know, wanting their kids to grow up and be, you know, <laughs> rich, wanting to see their own little kingdoms expand, wanting to, to have wives. Normal life. And then disaster. It was over in a moment. It was sudden and inescapable. You have this image of the Son of Man, Jesus, coming again, initiating his kingdom in all of its fullness, and for some, that day will be as bad as any flood. It says in verse 40 and 41 of Matthew, 24, that one will be taken, one will be left in the field and then in the mill. And you have this image of separation. There's some debate over what is the taking, what is, what is the leaving. Um, some folks will say that this is um, people being left on earth while the, the Christians are, you know, gathered up to Jesus. That's one image. I, I would say in the direct context of this passage in Matthew, it's of death and destruction, not of, not of a gathering. And so the one who's left in the field could be the one that survived the destruction um, or could be the one that's lifted up to be protected from the destruction. But either way, whichever way you go with that interpretation, you have this brutal image of separation, of finality. That two people that have the same job that work in the same place, that live in the same circumstances, are different in their relationship with God. The one person who works as a grinder in the mill loves Jesus and is safe in him. The one who works in the mill who doesn't is lost in a more profound way than I could begin to describe. Friends, this is real. As you sit in your workplaces today, in your offices, in your warehouses, in your studios, and as you drive down the road and you see the other cars passing you by, know that we are surrounded. If you, if you call yourself a Christian, and as I look out in this room, all of you do, 
Right? If you call yourself a Christian, there are people around you that won't make it when Christ comes back. The destruction will be sudden and inescapable. Jesus continues in verse 42, and he says this, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So let's think about the image that Jesus is painting here. One of a thief that comes in the night. Um, many of you, have you guys ever had things stolen, property broken into? We live in a relatively safe community, but there are a few of you that that has happened to. Um, so if you knew you were going to get ripped off, would you have been where you were as you were getting ripped off? Or would you have been like guarding your property, right? Call the cops. If you knew someone was casing your house to break in and take your stuff, or your storage locker, as it may be, like, you would prepare for that, right? This, is, this seems self-evident, but think about it. Whenever you know something bad will happen, if you have any wisdom in your bones at all, you don't just sit around waiting for it to come. And so Jesus states the obvious. Like, if people really knew what was coming, they'd get ready. Friends, you know that the king is coming into power. You know that judgment is coming. It's foundational and central to our faith. You know Christ is coming again and all that that entails. Stay awake. Jesus was calling out to the people there saying basically repent, seek the Lord, don't stay where you are. Paul picks up on this thread um, as we continue in Thessalonians, and he describes what it looks like to be awake, what it looks like to be spiritually awake. How can we be in that place? And so moving back over into 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to pick it up in chapter 5, verse 4. It says this, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. And so as Paul thinks about the Thessalonians, as he writes to them, he doesn't see them in a, in a state where he's drastically afraid. You know, as if the Thessalonians are teetering on the edge into oblivion. No, he looks at them and he has eyes of hopefulness, right? He has hope. He sees them and he doesn't see them as those that are in the darkness, that don't, that, that don't know what's coming. He sees them as those who live in the light, who are fully aware of, of the return of Christ and what that means. And so he gives them commands. We'll see that in, in verses 6 and following. But he wraps them 
uh, each, each of those, the section of the commands kind of in this encouragement. He starts in verse 4 and 5 by saying, you're children of the light, you're children of the day, you're not children of darkness. And then on the end he says this, read with me in verse 9. He says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or we're asleep, we might live with him. And so do you see that? On both the front end and on the back end of his commands, he reassures them. Like, you're with God. God has not destined you for wrath. He's destined you to obtain salvation through Christ. He reminds them that Jesus died for you so that whether you're awake, alive, if we remember the last uh, scriptures, or you're asleep, in this place it refers to that, to, to death, the euphemism that Paul used earlier in the letter. Um, it doesn't matter You'll live with him. You'll live with Christ. And so there's the encouragement. He says that when we believe on Jesus, whenever the Holy Spirit comes, whenever our spirits are regenerated, whenever we experience a newness of life, when we're born again, when the haze that's on the world has been lifted from our eyes, we'll be changed. Not in darkness but in light. In that place we'll be destined, we'll be appointed, if you're reading the NIV, to obtain final salvation so that we can look upon the truth that Christ is coming again and not be afraid and not be scared and not be torn apart, but rather be hopeful. When Christians sleep, they do so securely, right? So when you lay your head on, on your pillow at night and you fall asleep, you go to sleep with the assurance of what Christ has done for you. And if, if you, like most of us, reach the end of your days and you go into a deeper sleep, you sleep securely because of what Christ has done for you. So if all of that is true, if all of that is true, then let's take a look at the commands. How should we live? How do we make sure that we're spiritually awake? What does that look like? We'll go back up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6. Paul says, So then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. And so as Paul teaches the Thessalonians and likewise teaches us how we seek to be spiritually awake, he describes two different sets of people. He starts with the people of the night, folks that are sleepy, folks that are drowsy. You know, picture me oversleeping, 
the alarm doesn't wake me up. Stuff has to be done, but it's not getting done because sleep has its hold. And then he describes people of the night as drunken, right? So if sleep makes you drowsy and pulls you down into unconsciousness, drunkenness leaves you awake, but you might as well be asleep for all the faculties you have, right? And so the people of the night are either sleepy and distracted or they're drunken. They don't care about the consequences because they're in a state of just pleasure in the moment. And he says, that's not you. We know that that used to be many of them, but that's not them now. And then he describes the people of the day. He describes them as sober. They have focus, right? They can think clearly. They can see clearly. And then he describes them as prepared. And you say, I don't see the word prepared here. But what's the image that he paints of them? Um, He says, since we belong to the day, verse 8, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Um, For those of you that were here during our Ephesians series, we talked through the imagery of the armor of God, where Paul called out to Christians to put on the armor of God, that is, spiritual attributes that would protect them in their faith and enable them to do the ministry that he had called them to do. And here he repeats that. You have this armor imagery. Uh, it's, really, it's really like the look of someone in the military. You're putting on armor. And it goes right alongside this image of the day of the Lord. Right? Last week we talked about the day of the Lord. Christ appeared as if at the head of the army, with a trumpet and a shout, and Christians would join him in that great kingdom. And so here we have that military imagery picked up again. If you're going to appear with Christ as a part of his army, as a part of his throng, get dressed. It's coming. Be prepared. Being awake looks like being prepared. And notice he talks about the same three things um, that really we talked about whenever we began this series. What, what's the breastplate of? Faith and love. And what's the helmet of? Hope, specifically of salvation. We saw those, if you remember, in the very first chapter. Faith, hope, love, the things that undergird every good work that any Christian does. Every good thing that a Christian does comes from faith and love and hope. Faith, a part of the picture of the the breastplate. That is belief, strong belief, assurance, conviction, trust, in God. Paul says, put that on. Love. In this case, it is pure, passionate affection and devotion, and God is the object of that. So he says, 
put on love. That is the love of God that reflects right back, that overflows and will enable you to love others, even the unlovable. Put on faith, put on love, and put on hope. I don't think it's a coincidence that hope is mentioned as a part of the helmet, the thing that you gaze out from under, the thing that you put on your head that protects your eyes and your brain is hope, a vision of what shall be, that life doesn't stay like it is right here, right now, that the problems that you deal with today, that the pains you feel today won't be forever, that one day, if you believe and if you trust in Christ, you will see him glorious and shining in the clouds, and you will be witness and party to a new heavens and a new earth. More beautiful than any of us could describe. Put on hope, Paul says. And all of this paints a picture of what it means to be spiritually awake. In the person that has been girded with faith and love and hope, we see a strong spiritual life, like a vitality to their spiritual self that we just don't see in other places. To be spiritually awake means to be truly spiritually alive and alert and invested. It means vibrancy. Are you spiritually alive? Like, if you had to look at the depths of your soul right now and ask yourself the hard questions, are you spiritually alive? Like, do you sense the life of Christ within you? I'm, and, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to say not to get all spiritual, but we are in church, family, all right? Do you sense spiritual life within you in any way, shape, or form? Are you spiritually alive? And if you can say, yeah, I think so, I think so, most days, right? Well, then the second question is this, is there a vibrancy to your faith at all? Like whenever you say, I have faith in God, can you say, I have faith in God? Like, is there any strength to it? Whenever you say, I love God, are you just mouthing the words or can you say, like, I love God? I love him. And when you say, I have hope, is it like a, is it like a wishy-washy, won't-happen hope? Like, I hope I'll make a million dollars this year, right? Not going to happen. Or is it a real hope? A hope so real that you can sense it and see it when you close your eyes. To be spiritually awake means to be growing in those things, in alertness and vibrancy and life. Beautiful picture, Tony, right? Thanks for making me feel guilty about my awful state and where I sit. Um, I'm, I'm right there with you. If you had answered any of those questions with a, ah, this is hard, like, I have prayed this week. Like, how do I preach this when I so often fail to, like, experience it? 
this is what's good about being in the church, about being a part of our family. How do we get there? If we're partially awake and we want to wake up more, how do we get there? The last verse that we saw was verse 11. It said, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Again, just as last week, there's an acknowledgement from Paul that you are already this, but you're not yet what you shall be. And so he says, encourage one another. Build one another up. Know that it's true. Know that your hope is real. Know that whenever God appoints you, he doesn't do so half-heartedly or as a joke. But also know that there's work to do. And so the call for us, the application for us this week, is to do exactly this, to encourage one another, to build each other up. We do this in these gatherings. As we worship, as we hear the word, as we fellowship, that's great. We do it in our missional communities through the week, as we meet in smaller groups and we dig into the word. And we get more, we get more personal on what's going on in our lives. We do this in, in fight clubs or our accountability groups, um, where we do battle with our sin and we confess. And friend, we do this, we, we do this in our friendships. Like those are the structures that we as a church have set out to say, here, use these. May they bless you. But hear me, like the friendships that you develop with the people in this room, with other strong Christians in your life, will be the things that help you hold on when you ever, whenever you feel the weakest. Make friends here. And if you feel friendless, like, this, this is what I would say. Like, dig in. Take some initiative. Serve. Introduce yourself. Ask questions. Invite yourself over, right? Be a little bit of a nuisance socially if you have to. Um, don't go crazy with that. And the group will help you to know whenever you've gone crazy with that. But if you're the shy one... Take initiative. Take strength. And friends, if you're not the shy one, and you look and you see the shy ones in this congregation, the Lord has called you. In this verse, to encourage your brother and sister. All right? Come over for coffee. Spend some time with me. Let's talk and build one another up. Seek the Lord together. So this is your challenge. This week, pick one, two, three people in this room. Encourage them. Speak a word to them. Invite them over. Get involved in this community. Um, let's more and more be a picture of what God's family looks like so that as we proclaim the gospel out to this city, they see something different, something real, something vibrant, something alive, a group of people who are fully awake. If you pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, we confess that we are often not awake. We sleep and we slumber. We distract ourselves with a thousand different useless things. We far too often fail to invest ourselves in you and in each other. Lord, you've given us the blessing of like 
18 different translations of the Bible in English, and yet we don't read it. You've given us a thousand songs of worship, and uh, we don't listen to them. You give us every morning and every breath that we have, but we often don't spend time in prayer. And so, Lord, we ask that you would convict us, that you would energize us, that you would strengthen us, that you would build in us a desire to pursue you. And, Father, we ask that you would also build in us a desire to build up others, to be your instruments in this family and in this city, to see more and more people um, come alive in you. Lord, again, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night um, that he was betrayed, Christ gathered his disciples together in an upper room. Um, the men on earth that he was closest to. And he took a loaf of bread in the midst of the service and he broke it. And he, um, after blessing it, told them that it was his body, broken for them, that they should take and eat and remember him. And likewise, he took a cup of wine and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body poured out for you. Take, drink, do this in remembrance of me. Friends, Christ has sacrificed everything for you. If you're a believer, then uh, the Lord's table is for you. Uh, come up, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, partake. Remember what Christ has done to redeem you from your sin and the fact that he's coming again. He will come again. Remember him and worship him. If you're not a believer or if you don't know where you are spiritually, if, if you answered some of those questions I asked earlier with a I don't know, then the Bible warns us to warn you to rather than, uh, rather than come up and eat and drink, rather reflect, like pray, make things right with brothers you've sinned against. Um, I'm going to be back in the back of the room. I'd be happy to speak with you, to pray with you. Um, to, to get you into the next step of your spiritual walk. Um, and so with all that being said, let's go to the Lord and worship.